0: Welcome back to Love's Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got David Dayan back on the podcast. We are talking about the recent Republican efforts to pass some things in the House at which they absolutely face-planted in every attempt. And then we're talking about his recent print article about the problems with American democracy. And therefore, if we are to claim that we, are, we need to protect democracy from Donald Trump, we should also be talking about fixing the problems with our democratic structure. So we'll keep the intro short this time. Just have to note that this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. If you subscribe at $10 a month, you get access to our bonus episodes, as well as a free digital subscription to the magazine, plus a discounted subscription to the print magazine if you'd like it. $5 a month gets you our bonus episodes, which there are uh, well over 100 now. Otherwise, you can... Uh, Rate review, send to your friends, or just enjoy the free episodes as you wish, but yeah, without further ado, let's get to our interview with David dayan right now. Hi, David. Good to see you again. welcome back to the program
1: Hello <laughs> Long time. uh i i I'm not sure where you went for the last uh four or five weeks, but uh it's good to see you again um. Good to
0: see you too. And, you know,
1: congratulations. So- Let me just pre- preface everything by saying congratulations to you.
0: Someday, We're all excited. someday I'm going to get the boy to tap in on the podcast and, you know, he could be <laughs> guest host, but that day is not quite there yet. Um, but anyway, David, we wanted to have you on to, to talk about the, the news, uh, as well as a, a, a print, uh, article that was just recently published. But yeah, um, this is something I've only sort of been watching with one eye, uh, cause I've been, you know, pretty busy. Uh, mm-hmm. but the, the house Republicans have ap- apparently just be themselves to an absolutely uh, astonishing degree, uh, over the last few days. Um, and, uh, I don't know, sort of a open question what they're going to do next. But so we had an attempt to uh, impeach the secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. And then there was a border security compromise that went down and then an aid to Israel package that went down also. Um, so maybe could you start with the attempt to impeach, uh, Alejandro, Alejandro Mayorkas? You know, what was that, the nominal justification for that? And how come it didn't work?
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll preface by saying that I don't know who beclowned themselves more. This week, the House Republicans or the Senate Republicans. So uh, <laughs> we we have a, quite a contest going on here. Yeah. But we can start with the Meachum impeachment. You know, um, I, I think you have to view everything that has gone on in the Republican caucus with an eye toward November. I mean, they 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 really want to, uh, in particular, they think they have a winning issue with the border, and they want to keep the border uh, in the news, uh, and, uh, uh, keep the, the blame squarely on Joe Biden. I think one way they can do that is by impeaching the person, uh, who nominally has the, you know, responsibility over, over border security, which would be the, uh, secretary of Homeland security. And, uh, You know, they, they used a very creative interpretation of high crimes and misdemeanors by saying that because the border is a shambles and you're in charge of it, you should be impeached. Um, and that, that flew with about 97, 98% of the House Republican caucus. The problem is that they have a very small, uh, uh, margin for error and three members decided this is kind of a stupid idea to, you know, uh, set a new precedent for impeachment being uh, uh, an executive branch official who does something I don't like um, that. That is, you know, so the three that that voted against it, one is Ken Buck, uh, the Colorado congressman who's retiring at the end of the year and is kind of broken with, uh, the House majority on a number of issues. But the other two, uh, Tom McClintock and Mike Gallagher, you could kind of see them as constitutionalists. Uh, McClintock is a longtime figure here in California and he, he thinks that he's the only one who's ever read the Constitution pretty much. <laughs> and he wrote like a 12 page letter saying, uh, uh, you know, in in the the uh, constitutional convention, they they did not say maladministration was one of the uh, uh, topics by which you can impeach for. And here are all the deliberations, and and this sets a, a dangerous precedent. Uh, Buck and McClintock were known going in, but uh, Republicans had a two vote margin for error. Mike Gallagher had not disclosed that he was going to vote against the impeachment until they got on the floor. And so the House Republican leadership got in this really embarrassing position of putting this impeachment on the floor and losing the vote uh, because they could not sway Gallagher. They they brought over their most persuasive member to try to sway him, Marjorie Taylor Greene, <laughs> who, you know, uh, uh, has, has, has incredible powers of persuasion, as you know. Um, uh, they involve yelling at you. Um, uh, so Gallagher pretty much aligned with McClintock. Although I wrote in the prospect that, that there might have been a hidden motive here. Gallagher is the chair of this bipartisan China committee. And, uh, one of their big issues is the influx of shipments from China that are using a loophole called de minimis. Uh, we know, you know, de minimis. If you come home from Europe and they say, how much do you have to declare? Uh, if you bring back less than $800, which is now the de minimis threshold, you don't have to, you know, it's tariff free and it, it doesn't have to be inspected and you don't have to declare it. Well, what's going on now is that, uh, fast fashion companies like Xi'an and Timu are bringing Sending untold numbers, hundreds of millions of shipments per year from China using this de minimis threshold. Uh, it undercounts the Chinese trade deficit by about $180 billion a year. Uh, because that these allegedly valueless, these, these minimal value shipments have, have gone up into the hundreds of millions. And, uh, just last week, Mayorkas met with the National Council of Textile Organizations and put together this action plan that responds directly to Gallagher's request to uh, try to shut down this de minimis loophole. So I think in the back of his mind, he's like, you know, Mayorkas has actually did a solid for me here. I'm getting something tangible out of uh, this committee that I just started uh, being the chair of. And maybe I will not impeach the guy right away after he, uh, you know, just just got my back on uh, on this particular issue. Um, but in public, what he's saying is that we don't want to set this precedent of, you know, tit for tat impeachments just based on personal preference and ideology. And uh, so that's that's where that ended. Now, Steve Scalise, who's undergoing cancer treatment, missed the vote. So technically, if Scalise comes back, they could rerun this and and have the votes to impeach Mayorkas. However, next Tuesday, there's an election to replace George Santos. And if the Democrat wins that, and he's slightly favored to win that, then they're back at square one, even with Scalise, it would be a tie uh, on Mayorkas. So this entire gambit to, by the way, there's no way... Alejandro Mayorkas gets removed like the Senate is in Democratic hands and you'd need a two thirds vote. That's not going to happen. Uh, So this whole thing is a shadow play anyway, and they can't even get the shadow play right.
0: (laughs) Wasn't there also a Democrat uh, member of of the House who unexpectedly showed up from the hospital? Al Green.
1: That's right. Yeah, he was undergoing surgery. And he was on the House floor in scrubs. <laughs> With like uh, no shoes. So, yeah. So he could get back to make the vote. And and that pro- proved the deciding margin uh on the vote. You know, uh there were there were, you know, technically speaking, there were four Republican no's. But the fourth guy only voted no so that they could reconsider it in the future. Um So he changed his vote at the last minute. Um, so it really was a 215 215 tie. Uh, and without Al Green showing up from the hospital, it, it would have been a one vote victory.
0: Yeah, boy. Uh, you know, say what you like about Nancy Pelosi. She never, ever would make that mistake. She has her votes in the pocket before she ever does anything. I mean, I guess That's you correct. that, that, uh, um, Mike Johnson, well, he's inexperienced, you know, he's, he's not, he was a backbencher 10 minutes ago and yeah. doesn't know what the 100, hell he's
1: doing. hundred days into the Johnson era. And then, you know, compounding that, he decides, well, let's try this Israel only thing. And let, let's explain what, what sort of went on there. So for weeks now in uh, the, uh, in the Senate, there have been negotiations over a deal uh, between uh, border security uh, and funding for various uh, uh, military operations. So one of them is Ukraine. One of them is Israel. One of them is Taiwan, money for Taiwan. And there's some money for border security. There's some humanitarian money for uh, Gaza victims. Um, so this deal had been sort of in the air for the last several weeks. And uh, the House had made themselves very clear, like, we don't want this deal. We don't want any deal that might improve the situation at the border because we want to keep that as an issue for the elections. Trump has said this out loud. Uh, Mike Johnson has said this out loud. Uh, they're now claiming that you don't need any new legislation to stop uh, shut down the border even though in 2019, Trump said, I need legislation to shut down the border. Um, so, uh, you know, we knew exactly sort of, uh, what was going to come of this Senate deal. However, what Johnson decided at the last minute, uh, because it looked like the, uh, release of that border and military aid deal was, was imminent is he said, okay, I'm going to put, uh, just an Israel bill on the floor. This is like his gambit, right? Like, I'm going to get Democrats who are pro Israel to vote with me and I'm going to get this done on the floor. The problem is that, uh, they tried to do this under what is called suspension of the rules, uh, where, uh, they could do it quickly. Uh, it takes a two thirds vote. They don't have to go through the rules committee. Um, and, and what they didn't realize is that the gambit would not get the Democratic support that it needed. In fact, uh, the the White House said they they didn't support it and would veto it uh, as a standalone. Uh, the Democratic leadership came out and said they don't support it. It's well known at this point that that they don't have the votes. But for some reason, Johnson, after losing the Mayorkas vote, says, "Well, let's put that Israel vote up up uh, anyway," and they lose it. They they don't get the votes. For it, and uh, they look even more ridiculous uh, uh, in in the aftermath. And um, you know that's so. That's the House side is they seemingly can't vote for anything. They can't find anything that uh, they have the requisite number of votes for. Uh, and then we can switch to the Republican side, if you or the Senate side, I should say, if you like, uh, sure. where this negotiation. Was initiated by Mitch McConnell. He deputized, uh, James Langford, who's a senator from Oklahoma, to engage in negotiations with the Democrats, both, uh, the, at the Senate and, uh, in the White House. They, uh, them, and I believe Pearson Cinema was involved in that too. They, they took months, uh, crafting this, this compromise they release a 370 page bill uh chuck Schumer says okay we'll put it on the floor we'll do a vote for it on wednesday and the moment that they put this bill out uh republicans decide uh we're not going to vote for it <laughs> we're we're even though we we gave uh langford the the space to do this negotiation even though it is you know, very much along the lines of, of what Republicans have been asking for. It, it tightens border security. It does not offer a path to citizenship practically at all. There's a small, uh, allowance for Afghans who worked with, uh, uh, us forces. It would give them a path to citizenship, but that, that was it. And, uh, it it would, uh, really, um, uh, Solve the border, well, not solve it, but, you know, attempt to solve the border question on the terms, uh, that Republicans have been arguing for, you know, weeks and weeks and, and months and years. However, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that the House immediately said no meant that, that Republicans didn't want to take a tough vote, uh, for no reason, uh, and, and expose themselves to the claims that you know, kind of bogus claims that this would open up the border and you know, you know whatnot, uh, and so they foursquare turned against it. And and when ultimately Schumer puts that on the floor, it only gets four Republican votes. Uh, after uh, you know the whole caucus said, "Go ahead and negotiate." Um, so now there's just chaos. Uh, this is the really funny thing is they said, OK, we'll take out the border parts and we'll just do this foreign aid supplemental, uh, this defense supplemental. And now what the Republicans, Senate Republicans are saying, we want amendments to add border security into it. So so think about this. Like we 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 tried it with the border security. They took that out. Now they want to put it back in. It, it's it's just a. a a. It's like a hall of mirrors. It's like an M.C. Escher painting in, in, in the Senate at this point. Uh, it, it's, Meanwhile, yeah. the, the, the Democrats also look like clowns because why are they trying to
2: do a Dick Morris triangulation on the border and being – they're trying to be proud of, of saying that they're giving the Republicans everything they want on, on making the border more violent and just you know trying to out-Trump Trump uh, and then blaming Republicans for it not working out. It's it's a weird posture, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, the charitable interpretation is they knew this wasn't going to go anywhere anyway. And so they just wanted, you know, to sort of call out Republicans, like call their bluff. But at the same time, I do feel like this is the end of comprehensive immigration reform as a concept. You know, going back to the 1980s, uh, the what what is now on the right called the Reagan amnesty, Was a trade of border security, tightened border measures for a path to citizenship for those who were already in the country. And that was the idea animating, uh, the 2006 deal, the 2013 deal, all of these failed deals that were put forward with this, uh, uh, agreement that was put together that, that Democrats were, were all, all behind. I mean, almost all of them voted for it. In the Senate, I think there were five no votes, uh, uh, mostly on the issue of Israel. Frankly, not really on the issue of the border. Um, now they they put together a purely punitive bill, which had basically no path to citizenship for anybody's currently living in the United States. Uh, I don't know how they move on from that in the future. How do you in the future say no? Now you have to give us the path to citizenship now. They've basically set up that we will trade, uh, something else. Like we don't have to link a path to citizenship and, uh, border security. We will trade, we will trade that for, for some other thing, whether it's Ukraine money or whether it's something else in the future. Maybe it's the child tax credit. Who knows? Um, so, so now that, that sort of bargain, Has been broken. Now, you know, the bargain didn't work for the last 20 years. So maybe it was time to ditch this thing, but it's certainly ditched. Uh, I don't see how you get that back.
0: Yeah.
2: Do you
1: think there's hope that that
2: makes the Democrats actually try to move left on the issue? Because yeah, the the other thing that i mean they've they've already alienated arab americans over the pro genocide policies and so now they want to alienate uh you know hispanic americans as well <laughs> like it doesn't seem like a great move you know
1: yeah um i mean I, I don't know what the the progressive immigration policy is right now uh at this point i mean you had chris murphy who's nominally a progressive negotiate this thing and and uh, you know, there was some point where the narrative shifted from, this is a bill where we have to pay a certain price in order to help our ally Ukraine and stop Putin's invasion. Right. And yeah. at some point, the narrative shifted from, no, this is a really good thing to do to yeah, they tighten our the logic. Order. Right? Yeah, they, they the logic. They, they, they yeah. did accept the logic. And, you know, I mean, I think Biden does feel... That politically he's in kind of a tough space. Um, you know, now he's going to argue that I, I tried and, and they blocked me. The Republicans blocked me. And so that's going to be the answer now. And he's going to run on that. But I think that there was this desire at, that was clearly communicated to the Democratic caucus that, uh, we actually need this as an end in itself. It's not a means to an end but it's an end in itself.
0: Have you um, looked into that sort of yourself um, in terms of what you would do? You know, like there is, you could say, a crisis at the border in that there's like tens of thousands of people showing up every day, not nearly enough like court capacity to handle the refugee applications, you know, which are legal under the constitutional treaties and Um, you know, not, not enough like humane, uh, places for people to stay, you know, unaccompanied children is a real problem, uh, a real thorny problem, especially, you know, how do you find host families and whatnot? So like, what, what do you think would be a sketch of a, of a decent
1: policy, just like more money or, uh, well, I think resources are a big part of it. I mean, the fact is that you don't have a, Backlog at the border. If you have enough asylum officers to in, institute the credible fear tests and 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 see if uh, you know we we have people who are legitimately um, coming here out of out of an asylum need. Uh, so resources are a big part of this because every time uh, the Biden administration has said we're getting tough on the border, it reduces crossings for a little while and then the grapevine uh you know sort of goes on and people realize no I can actually still get through and then and then nothing changes the only thing I feel like that's going to change that dynamic uh, which is one that has accumulated over time we we're three years now from a pandemic two and a half years from where the border was essentially shut down because they were using, Title 42 this public health order um uh they were they were using the remain in Mexico policy to uh keep asylum seekers uh you know where they are um I, I think that uh resources are really the only way to stop that pent up uh uh desire to cross uh uh or or to not to stop it but to to have it uh, uh play out in a more orderly fashion, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's a
2: different. It's a difference between the xenophobic, like, don't let anyone in for any reason, and conflating all cases into like the other that shall remain, yeah. you know, expo- expelled versus resource. So not resources for more cops to, to punish and kill, but resources to help allow a process that's orderly and that has. Yeah, we have correct. a lot of capacity if we if we have a proper bureaucratic administrative
1: process, right. We have some. Yeah, we, we would we would need to expand that. And, and then then I mean, rhetorically, um, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, CBO put out its baseline this week, which is their sort of 10 year forecast for uh, how uh, the economy is going to look. And what they found is that and, and, you know, CBO, very concerned with deficits and debt and these kinds of things. And they said, well, lo and behold, because uh, all of these immigrants have come into the country uh, over the last year or two, the deficit is actually going to be lowered by $7 trillion. <laughs> um, uh, because these people are working and paying into the system and uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, this is this is this is going to be a benefit. Uh, it, it took CBO to make the case for more immigration that Democrats refuse to make. Right. I mean, y- you have not heard in a while the idea that we're a nation of immigrants, that uh, immigrants provide uh not just uh, uh infusion of culture, but an infusion of. Talent, an infusion of know-how, an infusion of knowledge, uh, that the immigrants have been responsible for some of the great inventions over the years, that they've been responsible for economic prosperity over the years. We, we have not, we've lost that narrative. That was a Ronald Reagan narrative, by the way, right? But, but that narrative has, has now been completely jettisoned. And now it's all about sort of, you know, trying to plug gaps in the border, which we all agree is a crisis, uh, even though I don't necessarily agree that it's a crisis. But um, uh, but, you know, everybody politically agrees it's a crisis. And, uh, uh, you know, the thing to do is, you know, haggle over how how punitive we're going to get. Um, so I, I think rhetorically, that's the real problem here. And then to, to, to figure out how to make this an orderly process because it's a process we want where we want more legal immigration. We want more, uh, opportunity, uh, brought into the country. We want more, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, all of the benefits that immigration provides we want to see happen. Uh, uh, then we can talk about, you know, the steps we take to get there.
0: Yeah, I suppose, you know, my and my long term vision would be a sort of like North American Schengen area, you know, where Mm -hmm. there 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 are no border controls at all. People are free to move, you know, from 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 Alaska all the way down, you know, to to who knows, Columbia or something like that. And I mean, obviously, just like the regular Schengen area would take, you know, decades and decades of economic development and political work. But, you know, I don't think it's at all impossible. And I think, you know, uh It's one of those things where the paradoxical effect of this the hyper militarized border is that it makes people more likely to try to jump across and then stay across. Whereas if there is like relatively little, if it's quite easy to cross the border, you know, and you see this in Europe a fair amount, people will just go will go back and forth. Like, well, I'll go for the harvest season or I'll go for seasonal work in whatever industry and then I'll go back to Mexico or wherever. Um, rather than doing a, you know, hail Mary last chance, swim across the Rio Grande, uh, and almost drown jumping over Greg Abbott's saw blades and, and shit right? just so that you can have, you know, a chance for a permanent semi, you know, difficult existence. Um, but yeah, we're really, you know, wasn't there a statue of Liberty somewhere that had a big immigration <laughs> poem on it and <laughs> whatever happened to that? <laughs>
1: I I think that Biden has proceeded on this issue from the premise that immigration is something I don't want to deal with. Yeah. And, and he's, he has certainly not made that affirmative case, but it's, it's even worse than that. He's just, I don't want this on the headlines. Uh, I don't want this on Fox News, which is an impossible thing. You know, you're not the, the news director at Fox News, right? They're, they're, they can, they can figure out an angle. Like it does not matter what the numbers are. Um, and so it was an impossible sort of, uh, method to, to think about these issues. And then there was this very half-hearted approach to, oh, what we're going to do is, is, uh, create, uh, uh, you know, security within the Northern Triangle. So those, uh, residents of those countries will not, uh, feel the need to come here, which, you know, just didn't, I, I don't even think that was a serious attempt. And it didn't, certainly didn't do anything. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I, I think Biden was kind of trapped from the start on this. He didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to, uh, you know, put any any kind of rhetorical muscle or political capital behind uh, any kind of positive vision. And uh, he he started from a defensive place and uh, was willing to concede and concede and concede. And, uh, you know, that's that's where we're at right now.
0: Very. Yeah. Very unfortunate. You know, I mean, I think it Biden's learned some from his experience as vice president, uh, I think, you know, you look at Afghanistan when Obama got rolled by the generals who were like, well, let's do a surge. And then that didn't accomplish anything. And Biden's like, okay, we're not doing that again. We're getting out of here. But Obama did this exact same attempt to try to buy off the conservatives at the border by ramping up enforcements and deportations. And the right just pocketed the victory. Um, as we were saying in our last episode, and, and it just ratcheted the, the, the whole politics of immigration to the right about a dozen notches. Um, one last question for you, David, on the, on -hmm. the current events, you know, do you, do you have any sense of where, you know, this is going in terms of like individual, you know, like the, the, it does seem like there's a desire now maybe in the Senate to pass a, a free, like just a standalone Ukraine aid bill. And you might be able to lever that out of the house of the discharge petition or something. Um, any prospect of that or 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 Republicans kind of given up on that issue or what?
1: I, I think there's reason to be concerned that that none of this will end up coming to pass. Um, and, you know, the coalitions are different here. Right. Yeah. I mean, part of this is we're talking about Israel money, which there's certainly, uh, uh, you know, some form of bipartisan uh, strong majority for that. But, you know, progressives on the left are certainly, uh, uh you're going to lose them on that side. And I think the Biden calculus is that, okay, we need that as an anchor so I can get this other stuff. So he's not going to agree to a, a standalone. That, that, that was the impetus for that, right? Um, and so, and then on Ukraine, where the, the votes fall off on the right, of course, right? I, I mean, there's, there's probably a hundred members of the House who want no part of that. And uh and 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 then there's the sort of members who uh having seen this deal come together with border security and want that put back in and won't vote for a bill without that. And so yeah, I mean you you do the jigsaw puzzle here and you add all those things together and it's hard to find a majority on both sides, even though you you probably would have a majority for the discrete elements. When you put them together, it's hard to find that majority. And, and when you don't put them together, it's kind of also hard to find that majority because each supporters of Israel and supporters of, of Ukraine both want their thing into the package before they're going to sign off on it. So it's a very tricky situation. And, uh, it's a good thing we have such uh, established leadership in the house. <laughs> Uh, to deal with such a, a delicate maneuver. Um, so yeah, it probably I, doesn't
2: help that they, they can't do basic arithmetic. That probably is an obstacle as
1: well. Yeah, That's- I mean, I, I think we have to think about going into the rest of this year without this package getting through. Now, what does that mean? Uh, the EU just uh, approved 50 billion euro for Ukraine. Uh I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the member states of the EU to also appropriate some money uh, to deal with things happening in their own backyard. Uh, the U.S. might not be able to, you know, be part of that uh, equation. Now, they might be able to sell weapons um, if if Ukraine is given the funding from other places um but they might not be able to be involved in that as far as israel's concerned i'm not sure why we're doing a supplemental with israel uh they seem yeah. to have plenty of money to already decimate uh you know reduce gaza to rubble smoldering rubble uh, I, I don't know what more actually needs to be done there like are you going to des- destroy the soil too like, like what what more needs to be done there um uh so uh there's questions around that. It seems to me that that the money is just sort of a a show of support. Now it's just you know whose side are you on, and uh, I, I don't know that the military needs are are, are primary there. Um, and then the Taiwan money, I, you know, it's it's hard for me to understand the articulation of why. That is necessary right at this time, but maybe, you know, I mean, maybe there is a good reason. I just don't know what it is. Um, but I think, I, I, I think there are sort of the, the meta issue here is the fact that, you know, uh, U.S. geopolitical kind of, uh, uh, preeminence in the world being hobbled by, uh, divisiveness and an inability to get uh uh this 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 money appropriated uh that has a deleterious effect uh, uh uh undoubtedly um so i i think that's sort of the larger issue around this
0: well this is maybe a good point to pivot to your print article um yeah. you know which is basically like america is not a democracy um you know i get we can get so so stuck in the um details and the assumptions of US politics that is kind of, you maybe kind of worth thinking about how insane this would be in almost any other democratic country you know like if you if you have an election like any pretty much any sort of parliamentary system you have to assemble a majority to form a government and once you have the majority you can pass anything that the majority agrees on you don't have to You know, have a midterm election and then give part of the legislature over to the different party. And now they have to, to like agree. And I think, you know, you make a good case in your piece that like this, this, uh, the, the basic structure of like the constitutional system is a big reason, you know, is, is a, like flagrantly violates multiple principles of like democratic representation and B is a big reason why the government doesn't work and everyone hates it. (laughs) So, can you get into that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the, the germ of the idea for this, this story kind of came to me amid all of these, uh, insistent, uh, 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 cries that, uh, this election, this upcoming election is about the f- the stability and safety of our democracy and about, about safeguarding our democracy. And we have all these threats to democracy. And finally I just sort of sat down and, and kind of sat with why that was sort of troubling to me that, that this was the, the basis on which we were running basically the third election in a row. Um And, and what I, what I hit on was that what are you think, what do you think is a threat? Exactly. You know, what, what, what part of our democracy do you think is so stable and, 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 and noteworthy that it needs that it needs safeguarding? I mean, uh, when we uh, periodically go around the world and bomb other countries and depose their leaders and install a new system of government, we don't install ours. And I think that uh, that alone kind of shows you how deficient our democracy is. We installed a parliamentary government in Germany, in Japan, in Iraq, and uh, to an extent in Afghanistan, although the fact that they have a presidential system in Afghanistan, uh, we see how well that did. I mean, obviously, <laughs> there were Afghanistan as its own ungovernability reasons, but uh The fact that vested power was put into the hands of someone who turned out, whoops, he was a kleptocrat. Uh, that, that didn't hurt. You know, I mean, that didn't, didn't help matters, I should say. Um, you know, uh, we just don't have a lot of examples around the world of presidential systems with first past the post, non-proportional, uh, uh, representatives in the legislative body. Uh, There are basically a a very good report by New America looked at 87 countries around the world that had democratic systems. uh, I'm sorry, 78 and uh, found only four countries with presidents and majoritarian legislators, three countries in Africa, Sierra Leone, Liberia and Ghana and the U.S., so the basically no other industrialized country has the system we have. And I would say that's because it's not an effective system. Uh, and, and if it was just the system alone, that would be one thing, but then it's the way that we get to that system. So we have, uh, the electoral college, which two out of the last six times has malfunctioned and given the, the presidency to the, uh, individual who got the, the second most amount of votes uh, we have uh, the, the 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 way in which the Electoral College works, which narrows things down to swing states so much that essentially ninety nine percent of everyone's votes don't matter. It's really a, a handful of people in six swing states. Uh, it's swing districts and swing states is basically who the election is for. Um, then you go to the Senate, which is malapportioned by design, where, you know, I live in California, and though uh, members of this state are 66 times as plentiful as they are in Wyoming, we have the equal representation in the U.S. Senate. Um, that is uh, worsened even more by the rules of the U.S. Senate, which are not constitutionally derived, but which have created a supermajority such that uh, I believe it's the case that uh, senators representing uh, about 20% of the population can stop all work in the U.S. Senate. Uh, And then you have the House of Representatives, which uh, uh, the the vast majority of uh, determination of who uh, is going to lead, uh, which party is going to lead, uh is based uh largely on who gets to you know set the arbitrary district lines that uh, uh determine uh you know where seats are apportioned and 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 who ends up coming out of them. So uh it's not just that the system itself with its high veto points uh and its its judiciary that has uh, aggrandized this a massive amount of power to be a super legislature. Uh, it's not just that. It's also that, uh, even, even if that system worked tolerably well, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really distorted by the nature of our elections, the nature of, of who gets to vote in our elections, uh, and things like that. So, so that's basically the thesis.
2: And it's helpful too in the context of the upcoming election, because part of what I think eats away at us when we hear the, Uh, rhetoric of let's defeat Trump so that we can save democracy is it's awfully convenient that if we just elect the Democrats' uh, incumbent president—that that's the end of what they have to do to achieve the goals that they're perpetuating. You know, they're saying, "Hey, this is it. That you you do your vote, and uh, then we get in office, and then that's game over. We've we've done it. We've saved democracy." It reminds me a little bit of when Hillary ran against Trump, and to oppose "Make America Great Again," I think wasn't there a line, um, "America is already great"? <laughs> like, right. we, we represent people who think everything is going super well if you just like right. stick with the status quo democratic regime. Um well and the and other yeah, problem with this yeah.
1: the the other problem is that it creates this belief within the public that if every election is the most important election of our lifetime then if we win this election then we're going to get everything that we desire there's this sort of manichean way that 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 elections are set up that do not match the governing system whatsoever So, uh, I mentioned in the piece that eight out of the last nine national elections, I'm including midterms in that. Eight out of the last nine elections, either one chamber of Congress or the presidency has changed parties. Five of those eight, uh, uh, five of those last nine elections were landslides. 2006, 2008, 2010, 2014, and 2018. So basically what we've seen in the last 20 years is a whipsaw back and forth between the parties, landslide elections going in one direction and then wildly in another direction and back and forth and back and forth. And and what the electorate is telling you there is that we want someone to solve these problems. We keep seeing these problems. So we're going to try the Democrats. Now we're going to try the Republicans. And then we're going to try the Democrats again. And they don't get anything that they want out of that exchange. And it's because we have this crippling gridlock uh, that is built into the system that uh, frustrates the ability for campaign promises to be met. And uh, this sort of frustration uh, is... Very alienating among an electorate. This is how you get Trump, in my view. Uh, uh, that, you know, it's a system that's set up for somebody to come in and say, you've been trying this over and over again. It hasn't worked. Look to me. I will solve all of your problems. A demagogue kind of uh, approach. And that, in my view, is why it's been, I mean, I don't want to say it's been successful because it hasn't won. A majority vote, any election that it's been in, but it's been more successful uh, enough so that in the cockeyed system that we have, it can gain real power. And it can
2: frame the debate that everything has to revolve around that, that uh, option, right. even if it's and, antagonistically. And,
1: and even more so uh, to, to that end, the way that we end up making progress, the way that we have to end up making progress is through these things that kind of look like end runs right whether it's um uh using budget reconciliation which is like this one accident where you can you can end up uh uh uh, taking this route on a majority vote basis in the senate or using executive action which i've certainly advocated uh over and over again using the existing laws and, and interpreting them as such to make progress uh you could even see, although I don't necessarily agree with this interpretation, but you can see using this. I mean, to just as we as we uh, tape this, so there there are arguments now in the Supreme Court over uh, using the Fourteenth Amendment to, to to deny Trump a ballot position in November. Uh, all of these things can be turned around by uh, by the, the the side that is sort of feels like they're left out of that to say this is a threat to democracy. Like you've heard Trump say Biden's a threat to democracy. He's trying to lock me up. He's trying to kick me off the ballot. He's trying to uh, use uh, illegal means, even though they're not necessarily illegal, uh, by using executive orders uh, and and going around the Congress. Um, And so you turn democracy into this zero sum game. Of working the rules because the normal methods don't really apply, uh, and that puts you in kind of dangerous territory. This kind of he started it tit for tat kind of way in which you you undergo the processes of democracy, and I think that's really dangerous. Uh, and um, and it's a function of the inability to use the the normal kind of uh, uh, circumstances. To, to, to get things done.
2: And it's, it's also a-, a missed opportunity, though, because you, your piece talks about all kinds of things that could be done to start turning around the structure of the political system. And if there was a positive vision to do that, we, we could chip away at these problems. And when people saw that things were, were going better, it could be a virtue, virtuous rather than a vicious cycle, I would think.
1: Yeah, potentially. I mean, I talk about a lot of uh, opportunities at the end um you know things like uh using the national popular vote uh, interstate compact which is actually pretty close right now uh to to end uh the electoral college uh or um you know uh ending partisan gerrymandering through uh various independent redistricting commissions um uh, uh you know ending the filibuster i think is the biggest thing right uh to at least give people yeah. Um, some somewhat of a, a, a more uh, equitable measure of representation within the Senate. Um, uh, the, the, the point being, and the point that you made, Alexi, is that, uh, we don't, we have these democracy groups and they talk about we have to save democracy, but they don't necessarily put together a democracy agenda, right? They, they, they don't necessarily package the things I'm talking about. Uh, together and say, "Yeah, we we don't know. We don't only need to save democracy. We we need to perfect it. We need to improve it. We need to put a a an agenda together so that the the will of the public is in some way reflected in in the governing of the public." And uh, uh, so, you know, I I, I don't suspect. That what we're going, we're going to get some sort of democracy agenda out of Joe Biden in 2024. There's going to be a lot of sort of negative pardons, partisanship and, and saying Trump is a threat and, and we have to uphold our ideals and, you know, very gauzy kind of abstract means to talk about democracy. But, but if you're specific, you actually give people something to rally around rather than this sort of abstraction. Uh, and so that's why I think it was important for me to to sort of lay out these steps.
0: You know, I, I think something really, you know, you sort of gesture at in your piece, but that's really underrated by those sort of, you know, democracy promotion groups is that this, uh, this, all this dysfunction, I think was a major motivation behind a major reason why January 6th happened. Um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, it's 400,000 voters out of 150 million who effectively de- decide the presidential election for 99% of the people you are, you are quite literally disenfranchised. Your vote is meaningless at a national yeah. level. And, um, you know, the same thing with all of these incredibly uncompetitive, uh, house districts and, and Senate seats, uh, you know, what's the point. And, you know, the fact that it, um, Congress is so that the structure of it, as 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 uh, partisanship has sort of ratcheted up, that it can't do anything. You know, uh, it means that it, it's like regularly in a, in opinion polls, you know, registers like seven percent approval rating. You know, just like below cockroaches <laughs> and stuff. And right. you know, so it's it's like a totally disrespected institution that 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 a demagogue like Trump, who you know, promises to like ah, oh, I'll just sweep all this crap aside. Trust me. You know, uh, to take those illegal... You know,
1: and and what did he do on January 6th? He came up with a creative option where he (laughs) said, you know, I can use this one little statute and the vice president can actually reject the election results. Now, that was obviously untrue. And the one sort of reparative thing that was done in the last two years was the passage of the Electoral Count Reform Act, which... Kind of reinforces that no, that's not something a vice president can do. Um, but what was, I mean, he was kind of looking for a workaround, which is kind of what you gotta do to get anything done in this, in this, uh, ridiculous system that we have. And so, you know, I, I feel like if, if we had a system that worked, then, then workarounds like that would be seen as, as more, much more beyond the pale.
0: Yeah. And un- un- undoubtedly. Um so yeah and and actually, it's something that it's like both the dysfunction of Congress uh revealed in the fact that like they hadn't updated the the procedures since like eighteen seventy whatever right. its a vague ass electoral count act, which is just in if you if you go back and read it, I remember um what's his name but a Barton Gelman. In the Atlantic wrote a piece basically predicting January 6th, not not in the exact specifics, but like this is, he's going to try to exploit this incredibly loopy way we uh ratify the next president that just hasn't been updated you know it's just like the type of business that 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 in an ordinary country it would just be automatic be like okay you know there's certain like housekeeping items we need to take care of it no it just sits there for like 150 years until someone tries to use it to break the country and set up a dictatorship um and yep. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's like uh, evidence of 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 some decks that need cleaning I think at a minimum. That's a fair conclusion. So yeah,
1: I mean in the broader sense. It's like if you think that that our democracy is backsliding, if you think that um, you know, if you're worried about how how our democracy is holding together, Then you should want to, like, look into it, (laughs) like, figure out why, um, uh, and, and, and make the steps rather than just, it's really just not about defying one man, uh, a particular office. I mean, that's certainly part of it, I think, uh, we're, as we're going to find out over the next several months. But, uh, these things long predate Trump and, uh, and, and fixing them is going to uh, go well beyond, uh, you know, denying him a second run at the presidency.
2: What do no you, matter who wins, we should not just go to brunch. We should do more than brunch. Right. Remember the br- <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. Um,
0: I forget if you if you mentioned this in your piece, but, you know, there it's it strikes me as something that was incredibly norm. It was so norm breaking that I don't think that most Democrats have really grappled with that it happened or not, which is namely that like there was basically a counter coup against Trump and the country was governed by a sort of triumvirate of Nancy Pelosi and chairman of the joint chiefs, Mark Milley and vice president Pence from January 7th to, to uh, January 20th until Biden was inaugurated. Um, you know, that, uh, I'm glad it happened, but like, that's not in the constitution anywhere. <laughs> and, right. you know, it strikes you. You me mean, that-
1: you mean in the, in what sense in that, that he was, he was sort of prevented from continuing to, uh, Yeah he was, still had, he still had the pardon power. He still did some things right. here
0: and there. He was cut out of control of the military specifically, I think. And, and, and right, ba- okay. basically there was an understanding that he would not be allowed to do, you know anything like that anymore uh and yeah you know it's like uh uh, i feel like people that like that was so crazy and improvised that you know it didn't the
1: the, i don't think we have a good history of that which would be useful you know yeah Um, me neither but yeah i mean this is the point though like like we have we kind of have these dormant mechanisms to deal with you know, some of these things, a rogue president, a president that has lost their faculties, you know, things like the 25th Amendment. We, we have them sort of in place, but really it's it's very ad hoc. Right. And uh and and no kind of no self-respecting governmental system would we kind of leave uh, uh these weighty matters to the, the sort of improvisations of various people who who happen to be in or near in charge. Um you know I was just in uh Belgium last week and uh there was a, a funny moment like several years ago where Belgium uh couldn't come to a decision on a coalition government. They had multiple uh, elections where they tried to put together a coalition and uh i think for about three years or maybe even four years there was no government there was a caretaker government going on and it was fine <laughs> they had <laughs> the, the bureaucrats were were perfectly capable of keeping the gut the keeping everything rolling along uh, uh i mean in a way that it would be in th- unthinkable in 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 the US uh we barely got through those 13 days that you're talking about uh with sort of a diminished uh uh chief executive and so uh there's just something wrong here and uh uh we 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 need to get a handle on it.
0: yeah i mean it's it is a fact that like nobody the the establishment of the constitution was not legal in the the sense of overthrowing the articles of confederation like they just went ahead and did it because like the existing structure was not working at all you know and like like to set up a new constitution necessarily would not would not necessarily require holding to the rules of the old one um and, you know, not especially what's,
1: inter- what's interesting and yeah, the the day after we put out that piece, I, I did an interview with Jeff Merkley, um, who has a new book out about the filibuster. And one of the things he talked about is that, you know, the reason the Articles of Confederation weren't working is because there was a super majority in them. Nine of the 13 states had to agree in order to get anything done. So they couldn't raise uh, uh, an army to stop Shays' Rebellion. They couldn't uh, raise money to pay Revolutionary War soldiers their, their pension bonuses. They, they just couldn't do it. And uh, so they put together this government that was supposed to be much more functional than the Articles of Confederation. And then by sort of historical accident, the Senate created the exact same supermajority structure <laughs> that was the impetus for uh, getting rid of the Articles of Confederation.
2: That's just the last point I'd make is that, um, you know, Rousseau has a paradox about democracy because uh, there's obviously a relationship between the laws and institutions that shape the people and the people that then shape the laws and the institutions. Mm -hmm. And the problem is you need democratic institutions and laws to shape a democratic people. But if you don't already have people who have the spirit of democracy that are creating the institutions and the laws, you have a chicken and the egg problem. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it occurs to me that like, you know, Trump is a symptom of a spirit of, uh, some of the people. And, and if we don't have people who, uh, want to be involved in shaping a democracy, if we want to leave it to the elites, and if we rely on visions like Biden and the Democrats have that counter xenophobia and fascism with, um, you know, process, uh, messaging instead of a real vision for what kind of people we want to be, then you're never going to form the kind of people who can rally behind changing institutions in the right way.
1: Right. That's really, it's profound. You know, it is, it is a chicken or the egg question, right? Is it, is it that we have people who are disposed to be illiberal or undemocratic? I don't, I don't know that someone sort of in the womb forms this, this, this illiberal nature. Um, or is it that we haven't seen democracy in America for so long that uh, we're 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 seeking other forces? You know, I mean, in one thing I remember from back thinking about the New Deal is that Roosevelt was very concerned that democracy was sort of uh, at risk because of the depression, because it wasn't delivering for people and that people would look to Europe at that time with Hitler and with Mussolini and see a model that they could latch onto. And indeed, you know, there was a beachhead for that way of thinking in the United States, uh, in, in the early 1930s. But he, he really saw his project of, of lifting us out of the depression as one to, you know, sort of reify the, 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 the entire notion of, of, of why we have a democracy. And I think we're kind of at that crossroads again, That that, that, you know, the, the fact that uh, for, for years now we have seen, you know, this, this running into a brick wall nature of, of policy and government um, has, 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 you know, it's it sculpted this tendency um, to go outside the 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 you know confines of democratic governments, so so you know I mean I, I tend to look at it more that way. I, I'm sure there's another way to look at it the way that you're talking about. Um, but uh, I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? Well, well,
0: I, I mean, I I would say it's you know Z Zizek voice ish dialectical relationship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have the the one thing reacting on the other. Um, right. You right. know, we're, 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 eroding our democratic, uh, spirit such as it is with a t- completely non-functional system. And at the same time, you know, the, the lack of that is, is, is creating a willingness, you know, is, is worsening the problems, uh, inherent in the system itself by, you know, right. eroding the, the willingness of elected officials to, to do their jobs, to, to, to behave in a patriotic fashion, um, yeah, it's uh, it's funny, you know, <laughs> I was just thinking about uh you know, what, the the way that those norms have been destroyed, you know, you think about Watergate, like what Nixon did. It seems mm-hmm. completely like chump change, you know. It's like imagine that being a national scandal. <laughs> Like in Finland, you right. know, it's like, oh, the 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 prime minister went out dancing. Everybody has to freak out for a month. <laughs>
1: you know? Yeah. Well, yeah.
2: I, I was going to say, David, you've done a great thing by sending Ryan to the Faroe Islands and to Finland because those huh. trips and those pieces are exactly giving new imaginatory, like imaginaries and new new ways of 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 realizing how people can live under different policies and laws and ways of life. You know, uh, and that's know. that's what people need.
1: Now he's got the kid. Maybe I'll have to go. Uh, I'll, I'll step. I'll step up. That's well, the sacrifice. You know, yeah, I, I. I'll do it. I'll take one for the team.
0: Well, everyone appreciates your uh, selflessness, David. Um, and that's probably a good place to stop. Um, thanks for coming on, David. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.